You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi everyone, Paul here, and just a quick message from me to let you know that if you are looking to improve the performance of your team, no matter whether it is a work, sporting, or community one, then we've developed some tools to help. On the website, you will find our Thriving Teams Diagnostic, which uses insights from the more than 200 great coaches we have interviewed to challenge you with a series of questions to help you understand how your team is performing. It's free and only takes a few minutes to complete. If you'd like to know more, you can check out our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi everyone, Paul here. We are taking a short break over the holiday season, and so we're using the opportunity to revisit some of our favorite interviews. This week's is from Ben Ryan. Ben's views on creating psychological safety within the team and making sure people have the chance to be the best versions of themselves connected with me very deeply. And I hope it helps you in the same way it did for me. Welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast. To me, being perfect is not about that scoreboard out there. This is a chance of a lifetime. When you can understand the person, you can then work towards a common goal. We are all on the same team. Now you roll and do it to the best of your ability. Focus on the fundamentals. We've gone over time and time again. Your defense has got to be better. Leave no doubt tonight. Great moments are born from great opportunity. My name is Paul Barnett. And you are listening to The Great Coaches Podcast, where we explore leadership through the lens of high-performance sport by interviewing great coaches from around the world to try and find ideas to help all of us lead our teams better. Our great coach on this episode is Ben Ryan. Ben is the most successful men's rugby sevens coach in history. He's the only coach to have won continental, world and Olympic titles. He started his international coaching career in 2007 with England Sevens, leading them in over 300 matches. In 2013, he took over as coach of Fiji Sevens and led the team to the gold medal at the 2016 Rio Olympics. The gold medal was the first ever medal of any colour won by Fiji at the Olympics. As a result of that victory, he was awarded the Companion of the Order of Fiji and is depicted on the reverse of a circulating 50 cent coin and on the front of a circulating commemorative $7 banknote. Ben has written a wonderful book about his experience with the Fiji Sevens called Sevens Heaven. He's also the host of his own terrific podcast called The Ben Ryan Podcast. Ben is an authentic coach with a deep reserve of hard-won wisdom. He is calm, thoughtful and committed to being the type of leader who can juggle the high care, high challenge coaching style that many aspire to but few manage to master. 
is honest about his shortcomings and humble about his achievements and secure enough in himself to be able to build rapport easily. The parts of our conversation that stayed with me long afterwards were his view that great coaches create a safe psychological space within an agreed set of guardrails that let people be the best versions of themselves and that you create psychological safety within a team by giving the members a voice in defining the expectations they aspire to. How his core philosophy is not making people ever feel that they're the runt of the litter or anything other than valued and wanting to leave a legacy of redefining what is possible for the small nations and teams on the world stage. This is a terrific discussion, and I hope you enjoy it as much as Jim and I did. The Great Coaches Podcast. Ben Ryan, good afternoon, and welcome to The Great Coaches Podcast. It's good to be here. I've enjoyed our little preamble and chat, actually, and yeah, I'm looking forward to chatting about, well, whatever you ask me, really, Paul. Well, I'm going to start with a really tough question. Where are you in the world today and what have you been up to so far? Well, I'm in, I'm in southwest London. I live in Richmond, which is a beautiful part of London, really. And in lockdown, it's afforded us the opportunity to get into a lot of green spaces, you know, into the park and down by the river. I grew up on the other side of the river in Brentford, which as much as I love where I grew up and my home team that I'm a professional season ticket holder in for the football team it's not quite got the green spaces of the other side of the river so I'm glad I'm, I'm here now and work is difficult I guess in many ways because a lot of my diet of work is meeting people and doing stuff and consulting but I consult for UK sport as well and, and they're obviously having to pivot at the moment with a delay of the Olympic Games so across all their Olympic teams there's been quite a lot of work to help with that and I've been doing some other random stuff, trying to learn French because I work for the French Federation. I've been trying to learn French for three years. So just to get myself to, to a, a position where I feel comfortable. And yeah, other, other little projects that I've been trying to get off the ground that hopefully might have, might eventually have, have been the case after we come out of this lockdown. But yeah, it's kind of, it's a, it's a very long answer, really. At the start of lockdown, I was really grateful for the time and space. And now I am feeling a bit like Groundhog and I, and I want to get out and do things. And it stirred my thought process into maybe going back into a full-time role in, in performance somewhere because I've been holding off, pushing back on that and just going to only have conversations about part-time roles. Um, and now maybe, maybe that fire's got a little bit too big again to get, to get involved in another project. So, so we'll see. Well, I'm looking forward to talking to you about that fire, actually, and hopefully the discussion around your coaching journey will just ignite it that little bit more Mm. because there is a wonderful crescendo at the Olympics. But before we get to that, I'd like to to go on the journey, actually, of, of where it all began because you've coached all around the world, Asia and Europe, and of course, before we were talking about coaching here in the Czech Republic, you've been to the Olympics. You've spent time with the New York Knicks, and I'm sure there's many other professional uh, sporting athletes and sporting organizations you've been a part of. So you've seen a lot of coaches up close. Mm. And so what I'd like to start with is, what is it you think that the great coaches do differently from the others? Yeah, this is, I mean, you sent me this question in advance and I, and I ruminated on it quite a long time, really, because I don't, I think it's easy to kind of go, right, there's a single thing. All the coaches I know have worked hard. It's not, that's not always the case. I, I can think of a couple of exceptions of coaches that work incredibly clever, but they might not be at their desk first and out the office last. 
But I know that's a common kind of strap line a lot of coaches will say about working long, long hours. So I'm not sure it's that. I think I would say in a very, a very big continuum, there's something around creativity for coaches. Now, you, you might look at one coach that's very pragmatic and structured and rigorous, but he might still have creativity in, in some of the things he does and thinks of different ways to navigate his path, I suppose. So that kind of creativity around planning, I think, is quite a big piece for, for a lot of the coaches that I've seen. There is obviously resilience because there's not many coaches I've met that haven't had some pretty poor moments and some some failures. And I think, again, it's a difficult question because I, I know there's lots of coaches out there where if you speak to half the team, they'll say their management skills are terrible and the other half that they say that is amazing. The kind of coaches that I like are very aware of that, have good personal relationships, create a safe psychological environment but I'm also aware that there are coaches that are highly successful that don't create that. And I guess that shows, you, you know, that, you know, there are different ways to skin a cat in, in, in creating success. But I go on to the side that if you create an environment where everybody feels safe to have conversations with everybody and can be their best versions. And I know that gets, that's another thing that Strapline gets banged out a lot, but let people just be able to do their thing within an agreed set of guardrails. So a, a set of rules that everyone's agreed. And inside that, you've got that, that security. I think that's, that's where I see the, the best high performance culture, sustainable cultures thriving. Ben, you started your coaching career in 97 at St. Edward's. You spent six years there, and I find this next bit quite mind-boggling. By the time you left, the school had a player in every England international squad from under 16 to seniors. That sounds like a pretty successful apprenticeship. How important was that experience to your future development or your present development as a coach? Teaching full stop was, was, was central, really, at the, at the start. I'd probably go rewind a couple of years because I did my teaching practice in a school in Kings Lynn outside Cambridge when I was at university there. And my first coaching really was football. And I, I love coaching football. I love playing around with formations and movements without having the intricacies as a, I didn't play high level football. I played a lot of football as a kid, but never to a high level. I loved that. And then I was a supply teacher when I had to stop playing rugby in all over London and ended up again back at uh, a school in, in West London in Southall where it was football again and athletics. And I loved coaching athletics. And so when I went to St. Edwards, they had all the resources. They weren't short of anything like that. And the kids were, they had scholarships. So they had a nice range of kids as well. I guess I was lucky. And I think coaches always tend to have, I think the, the factor, I think it's called the, maybe the principle of favorability where I'm a bit of a believer that if if there's something, a big, a big task, and it might be like quite a scary task or whatever it is, that at the start of that journey, you get a bit of luck that something happens that helps you on your journey. And I think with St. Edwards, I came across like two or three players in that my first year that I could see they were going to be fantastic rugby players and you can build a team around them, you know, and they, and they won 22 out of 23 games. And we only lost our first game because our number eight, who was our goal kicker, hit the post from a touchdown conversion not to win the game. And on the other side of the field was a guy called Nick Duncan who tragically died 
when he was very young, he would have been in our 50 cap England scrum half. And, he, and and that was an amazing game between this guy, Nick, who was scoring a hat-trick for RGS High Wycombe and James Forrester, who ended up playing for England and then had a an, an injury that stopped him playing, scoring lots of tries for the other side. So I had a lot of luck there. And then I kind of just, yeah, breeded success, I suppose, through that and through athletics. I remember my dad always used to say to me when he was young that they would use athletics in the off season to get fit and fast and do various things. And I kind of used that principle. And actually some of the boys got to national finals in athletics. And so I enjoyed the kind of, probably can't see behind me, but I've, oh, you can, you've got Columbo in the corner there. I feel coaches are a little bit like finding little, little clues to performance. So whether it's me teaching someone to triple jump, I'm finding, right, I've never triple jumped. I understand some of the mechanics from my degree and stuff like that. So let's go and find out about how to coach someone to triple jump. I was an all right goal kicker, but I didn't know the mechanics. So let's go and find out a little bit more. And and it makes you curious, I suppose. So when I was a coach and teacher in those first few years, I just embedded, I just did as much as I possibly could. So I was coaching every day as much as I could. I was finding other teams to coach outside the school. And I was also coaching other sports like netball and track and field and football because I'm curious as a coach and you can learn things off lots of different different people and different sports. So this curiosity, this teaching environment pushes you along and you get the job at Newbury as the director mm. of rugby and you help them get into Division One of the championship in 2005. Mm. What do you remember most surprising as you transition from coaching youth to senior teams? I think it was, it, there wasn't much of a surprise really, because whilst I was coaching at St. Edwards, I was also coaching the Oxford University under 21 team. So they're undergraduate team really, and they were grown up and bright young men. So I was getting that diet across it. So in a normal day, I might be coaching or teaching year sevens PE or and then my girls under 14 netball team. And then you're taking your first 15 and then in the evening you go into the Oxford uni under 21s. And then before I went full-time at Newbury, I was for about a quarter of the season, maybe I was doing the back line. So I had that whole straight away going on as well as coaching Oxfordshire County and Southwest schools. So I was teaching, coaching kids from ones that I went, I wasn't seeing on a regular basis, but I had to immediately try to get some rapport with. So I, I think it's, it's advice I'd give to any coach really at the start of the journey, just coach loads. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what level, what sports for me, it's just about getting that, getting that diet of, of ideas and, and experiences as, as quick as you can, really. So this, this energy, this learning, this curiosity fuels you to the England sevens coach position in 2007, and you lead them for six years. You coach them for over 300 games, but in your words, the experience left you feeling disillusioned. Mm. What did that experience teach you about authentic leadership? Oof. Well, by the time I got to the end of it, my eye was off the ball. I remember maybe six or seven weeks before my last tournament, which was the Rugby World Cup in, in Russia, I was going onto the field to coach a session that would have been, you know, it's pretty important when you get to that, that close to a major competition. And I stepped on the field and I was like, I haven't even prepared anything. I don't know what I was doing because I was so caught up in battles with senior management at Twickenham and that was taking up all my emotional time and and physical time and it made me realize that I wasn't doing what I had started my coaching journey to do I'd taken my eye off the ball really and I'd allowed it to consume me I'd got really I was really bad at up managing 
I was in kind of grown up as a teacher and as everything else i just thought there was a hierarchy and that that your head of department or headmaster was the one that organized your um your kpis your reviews told you when things weren't weren't going well and that and, and yeah i was getting very little from my from above other than criticism or threats from from different angles where you felt um didn't feel safe going back to that psychological safety i didn't feel i had any safety at all in the people above me that they were only really looking towards what they could get out of things. And it was a very much a political landscape back then. So I got good at up managing because I went to Fiji where I had to be very good at up managing with the military dictator as my, as my boss and, and going into a brand new culture. So authenticity. And, and I think I had lost some of that as well. I think I was short and rude sometimes to some of my coaches in those last couple of months because of everything else. And I learned a lot of, a lot of lessons really in those final months. And it's also a good example that our culture was pretty good going into those last few months, but it was very up and down in those six months previous, but we still hit a world cup final with England. So it goes back to that point that don't always have to have a great culture to have the occasional success. I'd set some foundations in place when I left England, we got a full-time training base, the Lensbury club, that we had developed over my time with England is now where kind of any international team that comes to England wants to stay now. And I'm proud of that legacy and, and, and setting up all of those things. But I learned a lot of lessons on how not to be a good leader from the people that were around me at Twickenham at that time. Well, those lessons get carried over to Fiji because you finish with England and you take the Fiji job straight away into 2013, you're the sevens coach. And in 2015, the team wins the Sevens World Series title, which was an amazing result, which had eluded you with England. Mm. What were the first things you did in 2013 and 2014 that fueled that result? The very first thing that, that I did when I when I got to Fiji, you know, I hadn't ever been there before. So although I had played against Fiji and coached against Fiji, that was about the breadth of my knowledge around the island. So when I got there first, I think... Part of my personality isn't to suddenly shout and scream at people and lay down a marker. It's to gather as much information as I possibly can before you then feel like you've got enough to decide on your next steps and the pace of those next steps and the risk of those next steps. So I, I went around and listened to people. And again, those levels that I've been, I've worked hard on over the last kind of 10 years on my listening skills, not just being on that top level that's pretty much transactional listening to you just so I can answer your question, but listening to try to understand and then get to that third level where people really think in the relationships you've got with them, that they, you care about them and it matters. And you remember things that makes them feel the other parts of psychological safety, like purpose and belief and their status and their achievements are getting recognized and they feel like they've got control. They've got some autonomy in, in what we're doing. So that was my first bit, traveling around, meeting people. My m management was all Fijian. So it was understanding who were the best guys on the ground that were going to help me accelerate kind of my learning and to try to, again, get that principle of favorability, try to get an early win that would give me time. And that wasn't necessarily going to mean a tournament win, but it was going to mean players see a difference the public see a difference because it's a national sport in Fiji and all eyes are on you in the start. And the best way I, I could think of doing that was to see what the culture, see what the environment was doing, listen, talk, and then make a plan and then work that plan. You mentioned a minute ago that your boss was the military dictator. 
Then, of course, when you did arrive in Fiji, you did find out that the team was bankrupt, had no sponsors, no one had been paid, and you weren't even paid for the first five or six months. What I'm interested in, though, is that when I see interviews with you about that experience, you say you never doubted your decision. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about doubt. It's so prevalent in people, in all of us. And when you encounter other athletes or people that are experiencing doubt that may be holding them back, I wonder what you find yourself saying to them. It's a good question because I think a lot comes into my my circumstances and being able to take that first decision to go to Fiji. So you're absolutely right that when I got there, when I'd had those first few weeks in Fiji and the first tournament we didn't do very well at, I, yeah, I had no doubt that I was going to stick at it. But when I initially agreed to the job, the following morning, I was looking for any way out of Dodge I could possibly find. I was getting messages from everyone going, oh, congratulations on the job, but did you know? And then it was this, 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 this. And and so I I remember feeling very panicked, ringing my agent, asking how I could extricate myself from all of this. And I guess the lesson I learned with that is that, that those decisions in life where you know it's a risk, you know it makes you feel sometimes physically sick to make those calls. For me, that was the best decision I think I've ever made in my life. I've made some risky decisions in business since that have all worked out pretty well. And I think that's my advice sometimes that we are in a a culture and I learned to be much better at this in Fiji. We are in a culture in in modern society where we overthink things too much. We try to map things out too carefully and we don't just sometimes let our gut instinct just go for it. And, and so I got there and yeah, it was a total mess. Everything that possibly could be wrong was wrong. However, like as a coach, then it gave me a completely blank canvas. I, I, did, I did have the ability to be able to make changes without having to knock on my boss's door at Twickenham, arrange a meeting, see him three weeks later, realize that whatever he had said to me meant something totally different. And you couldn't get any changes, at least with Fiji, as long as I explained it to everybody and it didn't cost any money, I could go and do those things. And so you could start to put some foundations in place. And and when I had only had about three or four sessions with the boys before the first tournament in Gold Coast with a team that I hadn't picked, I didn't know the players, they were very unfit. None of those, well, very few of those players would survive to be selected for the next tournament when I had a bit more time on the ground. The time I was training them was was brilliant. You know, even though I could see all their problems they were, they had, I could I could also see a, a route out. You could see how you could change it, and you could see how grateful they were that you were there. You could see that natural talent kind of oozing out, and it reminded me of why I became a teacher probably and became a coach was to help people become as good as they possibly can be, really, and then that natural that naturally ripples over into making a team pretty good if you can get the individuals all at their best and happy and fulfilled. And so that, that's what gave that, that Paul, that's what gave me my, my lack of doubt really was the sheer enjoyment that I had lost totally in that last year of England. And not because the players were unhappy or not joyful or not grateful, but because of the culture and the environment that was wrapped around the RFU at the time that, that was causing me just to fall out of love with the game. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Fiji, go on this amazing run. And it leads into the 2016 Olympics where rugby is making its debut. Of course, Fiji have never won a medal and you enter as one of the favorites. But as we all know, on the world stage, reputations can count for very little. Can you tell us about how you helped the team deal with the pressure and expectations leading into that gold medal match? Yeah, there's a, probably a number of things. Like I, I often say that it's neither one big thing that gets you on the top of the podium or one big thing that gets you knocked off it. You know, it's a series of small things and consistent behaviours. And so I talked about everything. I was very transparent. We were very transparent on what our goals were to everybody, that it was a, a gold medal or nothing. For them, for the men, we encouraged them to talk about that. So we didn't, we didn't hide away from that. And we set most conversations were probably pivoting around that as well. That we talked about well, if we're going to win an Olympic gold medal, this, 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 this needs to happen. When somebody wasn't hitting the agreed standards, then conversations were often around selection and success at the Olympic Games. So we didn't hide away from that. And then we just built consistent behaviors so that when you have that in a culture, Everybody, coaches, management, staff, board, prime ministers and players all understand that if we didn't win an Olympic gold medal, it wouldn't be because of that game in the final where someone drops the ball or misses a tackle. It would have been something that we didn't do six months earlier and a lack of consistent behaviours. So that drives performance, right? And it means that, you know, I'm a big believer. Yeah, teams can go into competitions having had a, a mixed results going into that and still win because that's the nature of sport, right? You can have upsets, you can get on momentum, you can get on rolls. But I'd much rather see some consistent behavior behind it that builds the feeling within a group of over-competency. And that's what I try to strive for so that the players will feel, they'll look, at, they'll look and they'll go, I feel great, I look great. My, I know exactly what my role is and those around me. I know what I need to do to get in the team, to stay in the team to make the team successful. My skills would be a great, I know what I need to do to get them better. And I feel like I've got some ownership in all of this. If I feel something's going wrong, I can, I can help drive this ship. That's what, where we got to because I had amazing people like our captain, Osea Klinasau, our manager, Rapati Calvesi, our physio, William Kuhn, and our, our trainer, Nada, that would all help send the same message. And so there was, there was a real feeling of overcompetency in that group. And that plus then putting guardrails in place where everyone's agreed that we'll have hand our laptops and, and our mobiles into the manager a week before we, the Olympics would be the last team going into the, the village. 
to avoid distractions. We'll do everything as a group at breakfast, at lunch, train everything. So we were nice and tight because I'd seen all sorts of things go on in, in previous Olympic games. I was lucky to be inside the village in the London games as a, as a kind of spectator. UK sport had given me a bit of access for that, thinking that I would be the next Olympic coach for Great Britain. All those sort of things just all measured up and those small little things made me feel probably a month out of the Olympics. I had absolutely no doubt we were going to win Olympic gold medal. And that might sound like I'm being a bit cocky, but it was based on competencies and knowing that everything was in our control. And we'd gone through so many different scenarios of what ifs and what could happen and felt still felt like we had a robust enough group to deal with whatever got thrown at us. It's an amazing story. I'm going to put a link to some of the videos you can watch about it on the show notes. You, you talk a lot about it in your book, 7-7, which we'll, we'll get to in a minute. But I'd, I'd like to just focus in on that culture because all the interviews I read or see with you, you, you are consistent in talking about culture. And then right after you say the word culture, which can mean so many things, mm-hmm. you do keep talking about psychological clarity and safety. They're such important themes, and you've mentioned them numerous times in this interview. If someone's listening, business, sport, community groups, whatever team they're involved with, and they wanted to improve the team culture so that they had the kind of clarity and safety, which you just alluded to, where would you advise them to start? So the stages for me are that first stage where you, you gather information through meeting, listening. People are, start to build relationships with people that, to that deeper level where they, they feel like they, you care. And then you set your guardrails where that's agreed. So whether that's something as simple as timings or discipline or diet, you say, this is the consequences. If you're late for training, this is what the consequences are. And everyone agrees them, therefore they own them. Therefore, when they're put under pressure, they're more robust because it's a collective. It's not coming from one person. It's the groups agreed them. Then within those set guardrails, that's where you create that psychological safety by continuing to build those relationships, by making sure that you're always thinking about, am I, do this player feel like they've got a say in this? At Twickenham, I felt I was at the back of some big juggernaut and I had no, no say in anything. Whereas I want people to feel like they're in control. They're helping everybody create that. I want to recognize achievements and I want to make sure I understand what people's purpose are, going to see people's families into the villages, understand where they came from, what their whys are. It also drives conversations. You again, get curious as a coach, which I think is a really important trait. I can think of Jerry Tuwai, who was like, just been named sevens player of the decade. I don't think he would have been player of the decade. I don't think he would have played in the Olympics. I don't think he probably would have even made the Fijian team if I hadn't with a manager, gone to meet his parents, have conversations that ended up me finding out a lot more about Jerry, about what his drivers were, what his wives were, help direct him towards being a better trainer effectively and being a bit more professional to allow his God-given skills to start to blossom. And that was just by being curious because I found him in a bush hiding from one of our fitness sessions. And rather than just kick him out, I want to know, well, what was driving him to feel that it was okay to be in a bush as an international potential player. So I think all of those things, I think as if you're going to create that right environment, those are the stages you listen, you put guardrails that have been agreed, and then you start to foster that psychological safety. And then inside of that, the standard that you walk past is the standard that you become. It's then about applying consistent behaviors. So don't be that coach that high fives you going down the corridor when they've, they've had a man of the match and then ignores you when you've done something bad, be consistent, 
that's difficult with coaches and we've all got our egos and we're particularly with the better players. I think we can sometimes treat them differently and negatively, you know, and I'm a big believer that the really good players, those star players that often can be seen as the more difficult ones often know more than you do as a coach. And that's probably what leads to some of the breakdowns in communication relationships between those players. And it's like, as a coach, that should be vital ingredients for you to, to know how you can get everyone better and get that player better. So that's how I would do it. Then in 2019, you published that book I just mentioned, 7-7. It's a great read. And I've read about how when you were writing it, you thought it was a form of therapy for you, that it enabled you to think about your core philosophy and how you had been shaped by your experiences. Could I ask you to share a little of that core philosophy? Yeah. I mean, I think we've, we've, we've talked about it as a, as some of this sounds really petty actually, like from me about what drove me, but when I was a kid, it sounds silly, but you're a kid that I had lots of weird kind of juxtapositions in my life, living next to a council estate in Brentford, but in my junior school was a, was a private school that I'd got a scholarship to go to. So all my people that lived around me were in the local comprehensive and I was cycling out in, in this big bright green blazer with bright red hair. And so they thought I was this big posh kid, which was, couldn't be further from the truth, but that was, the, that was what they got. And then, you know, I was, again, being ginger, it sounds, it sounds so small, but it was, you always felt that you were just not quite as good as everybody else. And you were the kind of the, the run to the litter in a little way. And so you'd try and do things to negate that. And for me, that was being good at sport. And and it continued like that, really, and remind, reminded me that, yeah, my core philosophy is not making people ever feel that they're the runt of the litter or they're anything other than valued. And, they, you know, they've got, to, they've got to earn that value as well as I have as a coach and they have as, as an athlete or co-coach or whoever, so that we can foster that environment. And, and, and I am a big believer that people should, if you have in the back of your head, you want, you want to walk into to work with a spring in your step and you want people to do that as well. It's a good start point for creating a good environment. And it's like, well, well, how can you do that? And how can you do it consistently? So my philosophy is around that. And, and I think what sometimes people can misread about me and about that philosophy is that they think, oh, that's a bit fluffy. Sometimes you just got to tell people what it is and just lead and doesn't matter what they think and you've got to be a bit tougher. And it's like, well, all those things, you can be tough and you can be ruthless, you know, and I made hard decisions as, as coach of Fiji. I dropped one of our star players a week before the Olympic Games because he broke, he broke our rules and the consequences were you get dropped from the next tournament and next tournament happened to be the Olympics. But I was harsh on all of, all of them. I trained them harder probably than I've trained any athletes. But you have those guardrails that you've put in place and then you're rigorous about maintaining those and you don't allow Greg to seep in because he's a star player and okay, I know he broke our rules, but you know, we need him. If you're clear about those things, that's not fluffy. That's the exact opposite of it. It's very clear and very black and white. And inside that environment, yeah, you allow people to be their own best version. You know, I remember one of the guests you had on, Tim Walsh, you know, is at Newbury when I was there, is the Australian gold medal winning female for the, for the women's team. I loved him coaching him because he was curious. He would think about different ways to attack, different things to do. I might have a move that I wanted to put in or, or formation for a backline. He might query it. We might change it. And that's about growth, right? And so that's not about being fluffy. That's not about me allowing the players to run the organization. It's about creating an environment where everybody can be aligned and working towards the greater good. 
you've still got many years left as a coach. Let's say it's at least 20. What are going to be the future chapters in the next book you write? I think when I left Fiji, I needed, I needed a break for personal and, and work reasons, really. And so I took all the advantages of being able to be in a position where you, as Olympic gold medal winning coach, you, you get doors that are open for you. And if you can maximize those, then you can really learn and increase your breadth of knowledge. And I, and I think I got to a point now where I've, I, at the start, I got offered roles that were full-time in, in pretty big clubs. And 15s was always what I was originally going to be doing as a coach. And sevens kind of just took me on this very cool journey for a few years. But now I'm like thinking maybe, maybe my return to full-time at some point soon is is what i'm after and also i don't want to i don't want to be just a coach on in the middle of the field i feel that my strengths now are across across everything so as a performance director running an organization helping to drive the the what the style of play on the field but also the philosophy and the culture and creating embedding lasting framework and foundations i look at some of the places now and I, and i know that i would they would be good fits for me and the opportunity will come and that principle of favorability, well, there'll be a phone call that will, that will come up and a meeting that will lead me to, my, to the next job that, that will probably take me on that next journey. I've got a long time left. I've got lots of things I would like to do, but yeah, I'm being fairly philosophical about them that I'll get that opportunity. And once I do, I think I'll be a success in whatever I do next. And I'd like to finish by um, reading a quote to you actually. And you've said, I want to make myself redundant. I want to be able to go to a big game and go and sit in the stand and have a beer with supporters, knowing everything is done. The team are aligned. They don't need the coach. Yeah. So with this context, what's the legacy that you hope you leave for the many players you've coached? Yeah, to understand that. When you create a good culture, then there'll be plenty of shiny things that you can look back at and go, oh, that was good, that was good. But actually to have a, an elevated culture You've got players that will see you 10, 15 years later that will talk about some of the tools they learned that weren't the weren't those kind of fixed things, but more those softer skills, more those people skills, more those ideas around how you deal with relationships, how you encourage people to be better, how you maybe take risks on the field that are guided by strong foundations of competency, those sort of things, I think. And so I, I get a lot. I mean, I'm doing... I'm in a company, one of my companies, I'm on a, I'm on a board with an ex-player who runs that, that and I've set up another company with another ex-player. I mean, quite a lot. I often have conversations with a lot of people that I've worked with that are doing really well and often that you get as much satisfaction out of that because you've helped them on their path and you may be shone a light on some of the key virtues that are really important in sustaining success and getting the right culture. So I suppose that's, that's it rather than the, the medals and the titles and the shiny stuff. Can I challenge you on that, Ben? Yeah. Fiji has a high incidence of diabetes. Yeah. And one of the things that you did when you took over that team was to change diet and fitness. Mm -hmm. And it worked amazingly well. I wonder if in 20, 30 years' time, you will indirectly, the waves that you created will have maybe lessened the diabetic rate, maybe led to healthier eating as those players that you've touched go out into society and take on leadership roles? Yeah, I think there was a, in Fiji, there was definitely a way of influencing the wider public quicker because we had this vehicle that was the national team. And so everybody knew everything about it. 
So yeah, the diet stuff, I agree that, yeah, if I, if I had a player that got injured and I needed to kind of tr- get him to see a consultant quickly, I'd take him to the, to Suva, to the hospital there. We'd get in early because I'd know that on Monday mornings, the doctors all had a quick meeting before they then went onto the wards and did their rounds. And that's when I could grab a doctor and have a chat with them about one of them. And I'd hear these conversations that they were having in the hospital about another amputation for diabetes. And then they would go from, they wouldn't have the, someone would have nicked the, the, the cleaning stuff. So they would go from a cesarean to an amputation and wouldn't be able to properly clean the, the, the theater and all these sort of things. And you've seen how the diet affected daily life. And so, yeah, once, once we got that, that message across, we had waited. We did, I remember the cameras did live on telly showing people how to cook breakfast and lunch and dinner with the team. And the players were all talking on telly about, about the changes they've made to their diet. You can make changes like that. Yeah. And I wanted the 13 players that ended up getting gold medals being cultural architects to, to driving good, to showing that. Maybe somebody saw a Fijian on top of a, a podium and they thought, well, look, if he's done it in sport. Why can't I get my scholarship and become a doctor or a lawyer and go overseas and learning all those sort of things. So I think, I think that shouldn't be underestimated in, in a country like Fiji. It's a very, I think for me to say, oh, that that's a, a tiny part of starting that ball in motion because you don't know what you don't know. And, and once someone's given a bit of information, then they can make that their own and they can drive their own behaviours. I'd love to see that, you know, and there's a couple of things that hopefully I can set up in the future in Fiji that is what some of the projects in exactly that, try to get them to to think more about their, their daily habits and their diet. I think on the uh, concept or the idea of being a cultural architect, we'll leave it there because it's a wonderful way to end. And I'd like to say thank you so much for your time today, Ben. It's an amazing story and I can't wait to share it with a broader audience. Thank you. Thank you very much. The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi, everyone. It's Jim here. You've been listening to our discussion with rugby coach Ben Ryan. The story of the Fiji Sevens team and Ben's role as the leader is just terrific. I especially like the way the team was able to embrace cultural change to transform their mindset and their performance. The other key highlights for me were the way the team addressed their diet and how this has gone on to influence the way people approach diet in a country with a high ratio of diabetes. The impact you have as a coach on players will be in their soft skills and the way they deal with relationships in their own life, as well as how they encourage others to approach risk and innovation. His warning, not to be the type of coach who high-fives the better players when they succeed and ignores them when they underperform. And do yourself a favor, go and have a listen to the Ben Ryan podcast. We've popped a link in the show notes for you. I think you'll agree, this really was a wonderful conversation and I do hope you enjoyed it as much as Paul and I did. Coming up next on the Great Coaches podcast, we'll be speaking to netball coach Tamsin Greenway. And I think anybody that's been in a good culture can't write down what a good culture is because you shouldn't be able to because it's constantly evolving it's constantly changing but you know at the time it's something special you want to be there you want to buy in even when you've had the worst day of the world that's the place you want to be and just before we go coaches are not usually the type of people who seek the spotlight and so if you can put us in contact with a great coach that you know has a unique story to share we would love to hear from you you can contact us using the details in the show notes.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 